Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. The story in Europe much more complex. It's been a tough few months to roll out this vaccine. And now Germany has outlined some plans to gradually reopen the economy. I'm pleased to say that still with us is our colleague Bloomberg's Matt Miller. And I'm very happy to say the German finance minister joins us now, Olaf Scholz. Minister, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. I just want to start with the vaccine strategy in Europe, which you've reportedly called, and forgive me for my language, sir, a real pile of crap. Is that a fair characterization of how you see things and how you've seen things play out in Europe over the last several months? I think there was a problem in ordering enough vaccines in the last year, but uh, now anyone is working very hard to work that we will have enough vaccines uh, to bring it to the people. And this is what is organized in all the countries, uh, also in Germany. What went wrong, Minister? It's just the one sentence I already said. There could, should have been, uh, more, there should have been more activity to organize more vaccines, and especially if you understand that most of the important developments uh, for modern vaccines have been made in Europe, and uh, two of the three big companies that develop new vaccines, Moderna and uh, CureVac and BioNTech, are from Germany. So this is a good basis for doing the right things. But in the end, I think we are now on the right track and uh, anyone is working very hard in all the countries and we are now vaccinating the people and we are organizing that this will happen as fast as possible and there will be in a short time millions of people that uh, got uh, the ability to have their vaccine. Minister Schultz, considering that those companies are German, why didn't the government act to get them first, those vaccines, out to the German people right away? I think it is absolutely clear that this is something that should be organized uh, in Europe together. And it's also clear that this is something that should be part of an international collaboration, which is working necessarily for saving the world. And as you know, we are already working very hard on international and global initiatives supporting those countries who have not the means to, to organize the vaccines for themselves. Because if we want to fight successfully against the pandemic, it will be necessary that we give the chance to all the people in, on the globe. Coming back to Europe, coming back to Germany, I think we will make it. Well, you're responsible for dealing with the damage done now by extended lockdowns to the German economy. Um, our reporter Birgit Yenin found that the government is considering as much as 50 billion euros in additional debt spending and supplemental debt spending in order to deal with the deeper damage from the extended lockdown. Can you confirm that? We will do extra activities. Yes, this is true. And we are able to do so. As you know, we were in Europe the first to fight against the pandemic with fiscal means. In the last year, we developed the first a very strong recovery program and we managed a political uh, activity that made it possible that the whole European Union is answering together to this uh, crisis. 
The effect on the German economy is uh, obvious. We are having a very good situation at the labor market and it is much better than anyone expected the last year. We have a very good uh, situation in the economy and if you compare the development of the German economy to other countries in the world, you see we are between the best fighting against the economic consequences of the crisis. Can I just push a little bit harder to get a figure here in terms of the additional spending that's necessary, Mr. Minister? Is 50 billion euros in additional spending necessary or somewhere in that ball ballpark? Your colleagues from Germany asked the same question to me and uh, <laughs> I always gave them the same answer. You will see. Minister, I didn't expect a new answer. Let me just follow up on the election that's coming up later this year. You're running against Chancellor Merkel's party. You have to find some kind of daylight between her and yourself on the pandemic. Where is the daylight? What would you have done differently that wasn't done? Fighting against the pandemic is a common task of the whole government. And I think we have to be very hard in fighting against the health crisis, which is uh, linked to the pandemic and save the, 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 and save the people. And this is what we do. And so I think it is not a good idea to do campaigns on these questions. But obviously, I think we need something which is a plan for coming out of this situation. And this is why I urged anyone to be very, very concrete on the question of testing and on the question of vaccinating the people. And the, I was also very strict in the question we discussed in the beginning that there should have been more activity in Europe about producing and uh, buying the vaccines. Minister, but forgive me for jumping in because right this is important. And Most people would assume very hard on this, this will be a single issue election this year. There is no other discussion in the global economy right now. Are you saying there's no difference between yourself and the CDU on the biggest issue? of the last several decades in the global economy. There is no difference in how you would handle this crisis and how you would reopen this economy. There is no daylight whatsoever. There are differences that are discussed, but to be very clear, it is a common task. And I am very much urging anyone not to do party politics in a question which is responsible, in, in a question which is uh, important for the life of our people. This is something no one would accept. And there is something which is different to other countries. No one doubted that there is really a problem with the pandemic and the coronavirus, and no one doubted that it was necessary to fight against it. So there is a consensus on this question, yeah. also not, not just within the parties of the government, but also with the most of the opposition parties. And so this consensus is helpful for doing the right things now. And being a very honest politician, I think doing your task is the first thing if you are running for ruling the country. And uh, this is the task we have now. And yes, we are the one fighting for the idea that this must be done saving the economy, working on social cohesion, looking at the people who are suffering most and supporting them, and fighting against the health crisis. And this is what we have to do. They are honourable goals, sir. Let me finish with this one, because there's a big problem in Europe developing on acceptance of the vaccine. Have you had the vaccine, sir? 
I haven't been vaccinated because there has been uh, an agreement on who will be the first and who will be the last, and the leading politicians are not in the first row. But any one of us said, and I do the same, that when we are uh, at the stage where we will be vaccinated, have the chance to get the vaccine, we will yep. take it. And I will take the one which is offered to me, and I will not choose one of the different ones, because there are a lot of very successful vaccines on the market. Minister, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. An important conversation on some really difficult issues. So thank you for your understanding. The German finance minister there, Olaf Scholz. Right now, John, this is a joy, a joy, a joy. The answer is we only have David Blanchflow of Dartmouth on after Cardiff football wins 10 in a row. They haven't lost in 10 games, which is absolutely extraordinary. So Professor Blanchflower's people have allowed him to come on air. He is definitive on the job economy. From the wage curve of decades ago to not working, where have all the good jobs gone? Danny Blanchflower to the right and the left owns a high ground. He joins us now from Dartmouth College, Hanover, New Hampshire. Danny, you have a, a, a chapter in not working where you say, where is the wage growth or the lack of it? With the government-induced inflation we're going to see, will that give us a legitimate wage growth and the good feeling from it? Well, in a while, um, obviously the big reality was the wage growth was very weak. The Fed really didn't interpret it correctly, didn't have an explanation for it. A big story going forward will be what happens to wage growth. But we have a puzzle right now because during, the, during 2020 and coming into 2021, wage growth has jumped. It's jumped to about 7 or 8%, but not credible because that's because the dropping of the, 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 the low end of the labour market, if you like. So it's just a batting average effect. So, so watching wages is going to be really important. Measuring it is going to be very hard. But in some sense, the, the, I think, yeah, you're right, you said a minute ago, look at GDP. But I think the big deal will be look at wage growth, look at what happens um, and see if it sustains itself in a way that it, that it hasn't. And, that, uh, and in the, the, the major reason, in a sense, for that is the people at the low end have got to be lifted. They've been impacted hard by the pandemic. They didn't see really strong wage growth in the last decade or so. So I think wages right. are really central to all this. Within wages being central to it, it is about jumpstarting the economy. Right. What is right. the character of 6 or 7% GDP? What kind of economy will that be? Well, it'll be a, it'll be a pretty good economy. I mean, we have, we have to put all of this in, in context. Yeah, but you Danny, Danny is it an economy for the elites? The bottom line well, is, and the yeah, distrust the is, the, the money's yeah, going to go to the elites. That's exactly the concern. I mean, the K-shaped recovery, strong recovery for some, no recovery for others. And I think that's really the concern. I mean, the great thing, in a sense, of, that Biden has done is he's focused on it. He has two really strong appointees in Treasury and at the Council, Janet Yellen and C.C. Rouse, who said in, the, in their nomination speeches, this is what we're going to focus on. Um, but the reality of that is it's really hard. It's really hard to bring everybody along together. I mean, look at, look at the stock market. We've, looked, we've seen that. That's doing pretty well. Wall Street's doing fine. You've been talking about it. But the issue in some sense around the world is what happens to Main Street 
And because Main Street has not done that, well, this is, in a sense, the explanation for populism. It's the explanation in the US of a, of a push to Trump. It's an explanation in the UK of a push to Brexit. So this is central to what happens in this recovery. Do you bring everybody along? In the UK, does the British Prime Minister, is he able to do things for the 50 constituencies that used to be Labour that went to him to vote for Brexit? You've got to deliver. And the question is, are you going to be able to? I mean, the question is, is what is Powell going to say about those people who are, who are at the lower, who've been furloughed and potentially their firms won't, won't, won't kickstart again? Danny, there's a lot there. Let's unpack a little bit yeah, of it. Sure. This idea of, you know, people come on this show and they say that the markets outperformed and did really well, even though Main Street lagged behind for a long time. Now we're entering a new paradigm where Main Street can perhaps do better and, the, and, and markets may perhaps underperform a bit. Are you saying that's hogwash, that that's not true and that's not the trajectory that we're on? Well, I mean, I, I see that the, the central part of what we're seeing is that the Fed is going to do, and the Bank of England, they're going to do quantitative easing. They're going to keep doing that. That's going to push up asset prices. The question then is, how does that quantitative easing, how does that help people at the low end? The answer is relatively so it doesn't. So the focus on the, the Biden package is actually about jobs, helping people at the low end, and restoring um, employment to those who are furloughed, those who've been pay taking these unemployment benefits. I should just go back. So when the unemployment rate rises, we have never, as of last April, we have net to 15, 20%. We have never seen wage growth rise dramatically. So why is that? The bottom 10% or so of the wage distribution dropped out. They're not working. They're furloughed. And the question is, if are the firms that are furloughed actually going to reopen? And if they're not, we're in really big trouble. The government's going to have to do something about that. Um, and we know that. We've never seen anything quite like that. Danny, I think the reality is that this is a big problem. I've got to jump in, sir, and we've got to go back to your time at the Bank of England. You were at the Bank of England at that mm -hmm. really crucial time, 06, 09, right before the crisis, mm -hmm. coming out of the mm -hmm. crisis as well. When you sat there with Governor King, did you tell him you don't like the idea of QE because you thought this would happen? Was it anticipated at the time when this grand experiment really got going? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, I think re the reality was that this central banks were basically unprepared, uh, unprepared for having to do this. But I think the biggest thing, John, was that um, two things. Nobody really had a clue about the transmission mechanism and how it was going to work. And nobody had a clue how about this thing would ever end. And of course, it hasn't ended and it continues. So I think the answer is no. Um, I mean, I th and the other part of it is think of the debate going on at the Bank of England. The committee is now arguing in public about whether they think they should go to negative rates. I mean, I remember being told then that half a percent was the lower bound. You couldn't go lower than a half. So the answer is this is this is unheard of territory, John. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, we, we will see um, what 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 assets will they continue to buy? What will the Bank of England do? Will the U.S. go to negative rates? I mean, I think Powell's made all the right noises. Uh, but the question is, do they have any ability, really, to, to impact things? And does a 100 billion of QE today 
are its effects the same as it was in 2009? Danny, how do we have a proper conversation about this? Because I know from sources that when you were at the Bank of England, Governor King told you guys not to go out there and say QE won't work. Once you decided to do it, that was it. You all had to get on the same page. You don't have to tell me right now on the record whether that was true or not, because I know from talking to people, it happened. So, Danny, when are we going to have a proper conversation about whether this works or not and not be dictated by just a couple of people who have made some big decisions? Oh, I think the the answer was, I think, eventually, by around November 2008, it was clear that you couldn't cut rates enough and that you had, you know, if you can't cut the price of of money, so you raise the quantity. I think it's, uh, go back to your earlier question. I mean, the answer is it's unclear what QE has done. I mean, think of what you just asked me. What has QE done? But it has to be in combination with zero or zero or some places negative rates. And so the, the attempts to work out what it's done um, are difficult. I mean, I take the view, actually, which is that if we hadn't done it, um, unemployment rates would have been 25%. I mean, I'm, that's the Bernanke line. Yeah. So I think certainly in 2008-9, it worked. Probably diminishing returns set in, but it certainly seems to me to have had positive effects on stock markets. Why else is the stock market rising? Because there's this giant buyer of assets that's out there. So I agree with you. Um, and we, I mean, looking back, basically we had no idea what to buy. So think, do you buy 10 years, 15, 5? So the Bank of England bought pretty, pretty long stuff that didn't mature very quickly. Um, so it's not just what did QE do, but what should you buy? What are its impacts? What, you know, what duration stuff do you buy? So all of that's still in the air. And the answer is that when you're floundering, you have to do everything. So I think and Powell has been cautious and I think sensible, more sensible and cautious than people at the Bank of England. Haldane said inflation is going to take off based on no evidence. So I think you know, the story out of the Fed looking back saying they got, it, they got, got 2015 to 18 wrong, which I said on your program, I think every month for three and a half years, so, so I'm hopeful, but these are tough times. Danny, good to see you. Always good to yes, catch sir. up. Danny yes, Blanchard, Dartmouth College, Professor of Economics. Let's get this back on track. Chris Barangi joins us now. Gavelli Fund's co-chief investment <laughs> officer. Dazzled. Chris, we're not going to do London derbies and all of that stuff. Let's talk <laughs> about the markets. Do I position for better growth? Do I position for higher inflation? And what's the difference between the two? Yeah, I think you position for both. Listen, Goldilocks died probably a year ago. Um, the era of low inflation and low rates uh, and good growth is, is probably over. And, um, you know, we're, we're, in my view, likely to see much higher inflation uh, uh, going forward. The question is how much, why are we getting inflation? Is it good inflation? Meaning, is it because everybody wants to go on vacation in August or is it because OPEC is squeezing us? And is it structural? Um, and, you know, those are all questions we think about. Um, the market, obviously, is, is very focused on the interplay between rates and inflation. And that has uh, fed the rotation into value stocks, which um, has started you know, six months ago and has benefited people like us. Uh, Chris, uh, we have a conversation with the leadership of Exxon today here at Bloomberg. Give us your update on hydrocarbons. Gabelli is, is ancient for a love of industrial companies where Mario was weaned. Your thoughts on big oil? Yeah, so listen, one of the one of the big themes coming out of the, this earnings season has been ESG, environmental social governance. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody's going to write about it in their annual report. Um, and the irony, of course, is that over the last several months, it's been these big, dirty companies uh, like Exxon who have done much better. Now, again, longer term, we'll, we'll see how that plays out. 
we actually just launched uh, a sustainability fund, our first sustainability fund called Love Our Planet and People. It's our first ETF. And, um, you know, we, we think there's a, a bright future for companies who are trying to uh, go green, and in particular big industrial companies that are trying to pivot to green. And you've seen that with GM and Dana and Air Products. And to a certain extent, Exxon, who is interestingly focused on carbon capture and sequestration as opposed to some of the other things that the uh, other integrateds are focused on. Chris, I want to go back to something that you said. Goldilocks died a year ago. And this speaks to the, it's not too hot, not too cold, not to the oh, fairy really? tale character. Well, I mean, honestly, it could get pretty morbid. I, I am curious, though, going forward, what that means. Who loses? Because in an everything uh, is perfect kind of world with nothing is too hot and too cold, everything can kind of rise at the same time. Who suffers when Goldilocks dies? Yeah, well, I, th I think you're seeing it in, in what's happening with the NASDAQ. You know, this is a perfect environment for the big growth companies, um, the big Internet companies in particular, that don't have to show uh, profits in the near term. Um, and whose uh, profits in the future are being discounted at very low rates by, by the market. So I think there's going to be more of, uh, of an impetus to, to be profitable, to have rational uh, economic models, and, and that you know, should favor the traditional incumbent companies, which now include probably many of the FANG, which are you know, enormously profitable and, and have very strong market positions. Imagine being a child and tuning into this show this morning. <laughs> Sit the banner at the bottom of that screen. What is this? You accidentally put on Bloomberg. You've got to nurse the children because they're in tears. Lisa, what is this? Chris, let's get serious. I mean, come on. No, honestly, this is something that people have been talking okay. about. Yes, look, we don't want to talk about Goldilocks no, dying. But at the same time, the not too hot, not too cold is a question. Is a 60-40 dead? I mean, these are some of the key yep. questions in investing. All of that good stuff. Mm. Chris, active management now. Do you think you've got a stronger argument for that this year? I think we do. Um, you know, I'm reminded we're talking about commodities. The cure for high prices is more high prices. In the case of passive, the cure for passive in the eyes of active managers is more passive. Um, you know, we've seen, uh, you know, mindless flows uh, driving the market over the last 10 years or more. Uh, and to the extent that we can do price discovery and add alpha, uh, that, that benefits us. And I think now is the time to do right. it because the playing field is is changed. Goldilocks, if Goldilocks is in fact dead, not everybody's going to go up. Where in the three or four accounting statements is the alpha generator? Is it EBITDA? Yeah. Is it distinctions of cash flow? What's the line right. that matters to the Gabelli shop? Uh, it's clearly the cash flow statement. Um, you know, cash is king. It always has been. Um, it's not about a revenue multiple. And, and so that's where we're looking. Chris, great to catch you. EBITDA minus CapEx. Always good to see you, sir. Chris Morangi, Gavelli Fund Co. Thanks, Chief Investment yeah. Officer. Thank you. What we've tried to do now, pushing on a year and ever more, is the medicine of this pandemic. Giving us original leadership in February of last year was Peter Hotez. He's dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at the Baylor College of Medicine. He has been ubiquitous. I would suggest, you know, it's almost like Dr. Fauci, Peter. You have been everywhere giving us wisdom on the vaccine. Have you spoken to the governor of your Texas? Uh, I've not. I've not had the opportunity to uh, speak with the governor or his staff. Of course, I'd always welcome that opportunity, and I have in the past, but not not over this latest issue. If well, over the latest issue, it's important. I'm hearing anecdotally of people just literally trying to leave the state. They're so furious about this. And yes, there's people in support of the governor. What would be your counsel to the governor right now of the differential equations of more vaccinations, better vaccinations, better statistics against his political philosophy? Well, there are two reasons not to 
dial back masks and social distancing at this point. One is we've got this terrible uh, United Kingdom variant, as some people call it. I call it the B117 variant that first arose out of southern England in, in September. And now the data showing it's much more aggressive in terms of its ability to uh, be transmitted. Uh, and also now the UK government, although this second part's not been peer reviewed, the UK government's put it up on their website. It looks pretty compelling that the death rate's higher. So this is a bad actor. And it's racing through the country uh, at a high rate, um, really, really bad in Florida right now. Maybe 10, 15 percent of the isolates, virus isolates are this B117 variant from the UK. And so that's so we can even though the number of cases has been going down pretty steadily, it's now plateaued. And now many of us think it's going to start going back up to be a fourth wave. That's issue one. And then second. Um, you know, vaccines are not here yet. Um, you know, that's been disappointing. Operation Warp Speed promised vaccines upon emergency use authorization for the J&J vaccine that's not delivering. Um, they will come. The president two days ago committed to having uh, every American wants to be vaccinated, can be vaccinated by late spring, uh, early summer. So that's good news. So hold off, you know, don't don't dial back the masks and social distancing right now. This is the very worst time to do it. Dr. Hotez, this may be premature, but looking forward, based on where we are in the inoculation schedule, as well as the technology that's been uh, discovered through this process, are we closer to the next pandemic or further away? Well, I think we're, we're closer to vaccinating our way out of this current one. And, and I say that because there's some exciting news that came out of Israel last week, uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. We've known that, that, that two doses of the Pfizer vaccine and likely the Moderna vaccine as well can, uh, can stop symptomatic illness and keep you out of the hospital or the intensive care unit, 95% reduction. But the data from Israel shows a 92% reduction also in asymptomatic transmission, meaning people who become PCR positive. So that's a game changer. It means that you can uh, enough people get vaccinated. And if the other vaccines have a similar performance, which I think they will, it means that we can halt transmission. And that means that we can vaccinate our way out of this epidemic in the United States. It means uh, get, I don't know that things will go completely back to normal, but I would have a much more optimistic outlook, maybe even masks coming off later in the summer or fall. So a lot to look forward to. Now's not the time to screw it up by relaxing uh, measures. You don't want people losing their lives before all the good things to come. And I guess that Dr. Hotez, looking forward to the next pandemic, the post-COVID era, where we're still dealing with the uh, different coronaviruses that could be out there. And frankly, uh, based on some estimates, it's kind of amazing we haven't had a pandemic like this until now. Do we feel prepared to deal with it in a better way than we deal dealt with this one, uh, which by many accounts really could have been handled a lot better? Yeah, you know, with that, one of the things that I always point out that things have gotten better with each pandemic, we do learn something. After SARS in 2003, we put in international health regulations, IHR 2005. After H1N1, the global health security agenda, and stepped up influenza surveillance. After uh, after Ebola in 2014 and Zika in 2016, at Davos, two successive Davos meetings, the uh, Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, CEPI, was launched. So each time we do learn something, we make incremental advances. This one, mm -hmm. I think, will have more far-reaching effects because of how it's devastated the, the economy globally and how it's yeah. become a global security issue. Dr. Hotez, as you know, there's always a kink in the smooth curves. If you take the wonderful smooth curve of the vaccination 
success of people like you. It's a curve down through the years. Where is the kink for you where we can say all clear? Is it at 50 years old? Is it at 48 years old? Do you have in your head 42 years old? Where is that tipping point as we move to young adults? Well, there's no. Well, it's it's really a, a gradual, uh, a gradual, a gradual slope. Um, but you know, one of the things we've learned also is that even younger individuals with comorbid conditions uh, can get pretty serious uh, illness. You know, the thing that worries me the most, quite quite honestly, is I think the U.S. is, other than the spring, which is going to be rough, I think the U.S. is going to manage its way. We'll probably see a third immunization with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, maybe tailored to the variants, maybe a second dose of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Don't be surprised if you see that happening. The thing I'm worried about is other parts of the world. Africa is scaring me right now because you have that's what's called the South African variant to B1351. Now it's accelerating into Malawi and Mozambique and into Tanzania, and we don't have a lot to offer. Those two mRNA vaccines are still pretty fussy in their ability to scale up production and the freezer chain requirements. I don't think they're going to have a big role in helping Africa. The AstraZeneca vaccine is a good vaccine for the UK variant. It looks like it's not working against the South African variant. Yeah. The Merck, Merck is out. So when you know, go down the list, we don't have a lot to offer the African continent. We're trying to scale up aggressively our recombinant protein vaccine. But I'm really worried about the destabilization of Africa right now. Doctor, you have touched on the issue, I think. And we appreciate your time. And let's continue the conversation in the weeks to come. Dr. Peter Hodes there, Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.